fellowship evening. We should all thank the Lord for having brought us here to have our souls nourished tonight. Our Creator has given us this holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired word of life that when received in faith transforms us into new creations in His Son, Jesus Christ. Today we're going to begin a new book of the Bible, James. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or on your devices to James. James is towards the end of the Bible. If you find Hebrews, you're going too far. It's a little bit past, just past Hebrews. So if you're coming from the back way. Um, our verses are also printed on page 10 in your bulletin. Now as we find our way there, let me help us to understand the person who's writing this, the human co-author. I want you to imagine being a young child growing up in a large family, four brothers, at least two sisters, and everybody in your family, including your parents, are faithful believers. But you have one brother who just seems to be from another world altogether. What do you mean, Joel? This brother was like absolutely perfect in every way. As a baby, he never once threw a temper tantrum. At dinner time, he ate all his vegetables, even his Brussels sprouts. I see Dave shaking his head there. He always did all his chores and when his parents asked him to. He avoided all the typical foolish teenage rebellion. He was gracious to everyone, even the most rotten kids in the classroom. That was what it was like, James' childhood. He watched his older brother grow up strong and wise. He was loved by God and men. Imagine living in the shadow of a perfect older brother and occasionally hearing after times when you messed up, James, why can't you be like your older brother? Jesus. Now hear the word of our God from James, chapter 1, the first four verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's go to the Lord of the Word in prayer. Heavenly Father, will you uh, speak to us tonight and grant us wisdom from above? And show us our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'll confess this is a special moment for me. God has been preparing me for about 15 years to preach this letter. I grew up in a Christian home. I walked away from Jesus after family troubles. And in 2007, when I was in my early 30s, Jesus sought me and found me once again. Shortly afterwards, a Christian co-worker invited me to memorize the book of James with him. And from that time on, I have been learning how to count it all joy in trials of various kinds, beginning in the RV factory, to trials at home, to where I am today. And our James, James, our, our author, he actually had a very similar path. He grew up in a home with Christ, literally, but he walked away from Jesus. He became a skeptic. He did not believe in his own brother. But after being raised from the dead, Jesus sought his brother out. 
and James started a journey that led him to become a pastor. And about 15 years later, God had prepared him to write this wonderful pastoral letter to bless the church. And friends, James is going to be such a blessing. I'm not sure how many weeks. I have it mapped out, but it may change. Uh, You see, we live in a sin-stained, broken world where we're going to face trials. But James has given us a guidebook to be wise, to be faithful in our living before God. And he teaches us about joyful maturation. There are five chapters, and this is such a practical guide. There are actually 59 instructions in the 108 verses. That's actually one instruction a day to work on for for two months. And if you actually kept with that pattern, you could do every instruction, work on it, six times in a year. Now, if you were to do that, to take each of the instructions and work on one a day for a whole year, what might your life look like? I think you'd find yourself much wiser, learning how to handle your trials better, living to a new and a better rhythm, and finding greater joy through it all. So let's begin by finding out first a little bit more about James. I've told you James is the brother or half-brother of Jesus. There's actually four James in the New Testament, four candidates. You'll find actually three in one verse if you look at Acts 1, verse 13. Now, we know James has to be well-known just by the introduction. He simply introduced himself as James. He's so well-known in Christian circles, all he has to do is say, James. If I said, let's discuss talk show hosts, and I'll only give you a first name and see if you can guess who it is. And I say to you, Oprah. Not a single one of you is going to say, Oprah, who, uh, no. We all know exactly who I'm talking about. So, we can eliminate two of the candidates for who James is just because two of them are pretty much completely unknown. One's the unknown father of a disciple, and one, the James, the son of Alphaeus, history knows next to nothing about. Now, a very good candidate for James would be the disciple James, brother of John, son of Zebedee. This James is actually part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They constantly go off with Jesus. The problem is this James was martyred early on. In Acts 12, Herod had him killed, which really just leaves us with this James, the younger half-brother of Jesus, who came to faith after the resurrection when Jesus last appeared to him. You find in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, also in Galatians 2, Paul talks about James, Jesus appearing to him and him being made one of the apostles. And we read that James came to saving faith after this, after being a skeptic most of his young life. As a side, I think this should encourage those of us who have loved ones, who've walked away from the faith. James grew up hearing the promises of God. He lived with Jesus in his home. He saw Jesus' perfect love and life. And it wasn't helpful to him at all. I'll confess I'm sympathetic. I have a sister who never once, I think, brought home anything less than an A on her report cards. (laughs) Yeah, as you can probably tell, I'm still not over it. But James' brother, he's on a whole other level than my sister. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? Later in life, James actually becomes hostile to Jesus. He calls his own brother crazy. 
he didn't believe his brother was the Messiah as Jesus was claiming to be. Read Mark 3.21. Read John 7, verses 3 to 5. But after Jesus died on the cross, all things changed. Now, think about this. Jesus could have left his brother in his skepticism. Right? He could have left him there. But the risen Lord Jesus sought out his younger brother. And James came to saving faith. So be encouraged. Jesus is still doing that today. I've seen it happen. And Jesus is giving you the privilege right now to be praying for your loved ones. To be asking him to come in and think about your, the wonderful thing. You get the privilege of participating in the work of bringing them to saving faith. What a joy it will be one day when you do see them serving and loving Jesus with all their heart. I mean, look at James. <laughs> look at him. James actually becomes one of the four pillars of the church. That's what we find out in the book of Acts. And after persecution breaks out in Jerusalem and many of the Christians are forced to flee, James sticks it out with those who remain. He becomes the lead pastor of thousands that are remaining in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, you'll read, that's actually, I would call it the first general assembly of the Jerusalem Presbytery. And who happened to be the moderator of this first assembly of pastors and elders? None other than Pastor James of the First Presbyterian Church in Jerusalem. And if you read James' speech in Acts 15, you're actually going to find similarities that I think further prove that James is the author here. He has concern for the law, for peacemaking, and you'll find these are major themes in his letter. It's pretty conclusive that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this letter. So let me ask you this. Why does James begin, James a servant of God, okay, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm related as closely as a person could be physically to the reigning King Jesus, why would I not want to impress my readers with my bloodline? I mean, that's a significant credential in this culture that appreciates royalty. I mean, think of England and what's going on. Queen Elizabeth, suddenly we all know these bloodlines and they're significant. Why not grab our attention by starting by saying, James, servant of God and brother of the Lord Jesus Christ? Very simple answer. Because James' relationship to Jesus physically was of no spiritual help to him. Remember that James was spiritually dead, growing up as Jesus' brother. It was only after his risen brother appeared to James that he finally became a believer and he knew at that moment, as he saw the nail-pierced hands of his brother, the one brother he once mocked, that his new relationship was all of God's grace. And he was happy at that point just to be a servant. I have no doubt that James saw having the Lord Jesus as his physical brother was a marvelous privilege. But James now knows better than anyone what his brother taught, that flesh is of no profit if there is no faith. John 6, 63. James knows that you can be this near physically to the Lord Jesus and yet not be in saving relationship with him. You could have asked James about, hey, what's your relationship with Jesus? And he would have responded for most of his life, I am his brother. I've known him my whole life. And the same is true if you ask many folks in our community. Friend, do you have a relationship with Jesus? 
And their first response often is, oh, I go to such and such a church. Or they might say, oh, yes, I invited him into my life many years ago. And you could say, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. Wonderful. But what would happen if you pressed a bit further and asked this? Are you serving him? Are you living every day to serve the Lord Jesus? How many would honestly say yes? Can you? Friends, James wants you to have the spirit-given instinct that when you are asked about your relationship to the Lord Jesus, you can say, I trust him with my whole life, and I gladly live to be his humble servant. And that spirit-guided humility is why James does not open the letter, James, mega pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Jerusalem, or James, moderator of the Acts 15 General Assembly and brother of our Lord. You see, James knows now that all the days on earth for the believer are a call to constant humility. Actually, Jesse and I were talking about this earlier. Humility is from which all other fruits flow in a real sense. And when God took on human legs in our Lord Jesus, he also took up the form of a servant. Not grasping for glory, but showing us how humility is the way to exaltation. I hope we've kind of settled on the authorship at this point. So let's move on then to whom James is writing to, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Who are the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Well, the easy answer is the early Christians who were forced to flee Jerusalem. When the gospel began to catch wildfire, you read about this in Acts after Jesus' resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jewish religious leaders attempt to snuff out the early church, this growing movement. You read in Acts 8 how Saul is now ravaging the church. Many were uprooted from their homes. They lived there for their whole lives and dispersed throughout the world, the dispersion. Think of the pictures that we see in Ukraine. You know, families forced to flee these cities, the grieving faces of these elderly, little faces of the children who have no clue what's going on. The parents stuff all their things, all their worldly possessions that they can fit into a vehicle. And they're forced to leave their homes. Forced to leave their livelihood. In tears, forced to leave their friends. May never see them again. They head off to places they don't know anything about to start their lives all over. Places where they don't even speak the same language. They have no safety networks, no supports. They're dispersed. Pilgrims in a strange land. But why does James call them? We get the dispersion. Why does he call them the 12 tribes? The 12 tribes, we read about these in the Old Testament. 12 tribes of Israel. But friends, in James' day, there is no 12 tribes. The twin tribes were lost to history when the Assyrian invasion came in and then the Babylonians. All you have is some Jews and a few Benjaminites. 10 tribes lost to history. What's James doing here? Well, James is showing them first that they're connected to something that God is doing in history and still doing in history. That all who have believed in Jesus Christ are actually now the chosen people. In the same way in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes were the chosen people. But I think more, we're actually seeing a reversal 
happening in light of the resurrection. Dispersion is now God's strategy to bring restoration. It's actually one that continues to the present day. You see, friend, the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus, you are brought into God's family, God's pilgrim family. Heart City is actually part of the 12 tribes of the dispersed people of God throughout the world. And God continues his work through dispersion. So we've talked about the author. We've talked about the audience. I always think it's important to help us to get into the text that way. Now we come to the letter itself. And wonderfully, James is a very practical letter to help us live godly lives as disciples. 59 commands for godly living in 108 verses, and James doesn't beat around the bush. He starts immediately with instructions. So remember, think of those Ukrainian families. Very similar situation with these Jewish Christians. How would you go about starting your instructions? What would be your first counsel to these people? Would you even start the letter with instructions? Certainly uh, John and Sarah. Let's give them a couple names. They saw in their mailbox a letter from their dear pastor James. What a pleasant surprise. Their longtime pastor cared enough to write them in this tough situation as they're in a foreign land. What do you think the first thought in their minds was when they read this? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Does this surprise you? Is James a masochist? Of course not. We need to understand, in the first place, that James is, a, is the New Testament wisdom book written in light of Jesus' resurrection. You have a lot of wisdom literature, but James is the New Testament wisdom book. And he's teaching us how can we live well in a broken world in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which makes this verse command in James quite significant. Why count it all joy and trials? Well, you have to read on. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. James says, count it all joy and trials because we know something. We know something. We have knowledge about what these trials are for, what they're about. So how we feel in the trials, it does matter. Our feelings are real. It is significant. But our feelings are not the way we understand trials. Our feelings are not the way we understand trials. Our emotions our wonderful servants, horrible masters. We have to know something about our trials. And James says, when you know this, then we have a lens by which how to view trials that come our way in life. And the first thing we need to know is that trials are a testing of our faith, a testing of our faith. God wants to test your faith. God wants the believer to increase their trust in Jesus and he does this by sending trials your way. And that implies that any trial that comes your way is God-given. It's not a thing of chance. And that is a comforting thing to know, despite the discomfort of the trial, that nothing comes your way apart from the loving hand of your God. And it is a loving thing. 
to test our faith because here's our problem. We don't fully believe that Jesus Christ is enough. We don't yet. Friends, none of us in this life fully believe in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And trials are the main reason, the means by which God reveals how we have yet to fully or more fully take a hold of Jesus. Think about what happens when you meet trials of various kinds. What happens when your reputation is attacked? Or you lose money? Or you lose a job? When someone stabs you in the back? When you go to the doctor and you find out you have cancer? What happens when God keeps back the good things that you see others have in this life? Maybe a spouse. Maybe children. A better career. A nicer house. A lot of times you look up to heaven. Why are you doing this? What is happening? Your faith is being tested at that moment. Friends, when God sends a trial, I want you to understand he's always asking you this question at least. Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough? Don't we often find ourselves something in us screaming out? God, if I don't get this, I can't possibly be happy. If I don't get this better job, a spouse, a nicer house, a kinder boss, if I don't have that, I can't rejoice. Friends, this actually reveals we believe in a Jesus plus salvation, a Jesus plus this. Every time something gets stripped away, your health, your reputation, you lose money, it reveals a weakness in us where our faith is not strong enough where we say, Jesus is enough. I can still have joy. And God is showing us we need to repent at that moment and more fully take a hold of Jesus Christ and rejoice because this is the way that God uses to better connect us to Christ because we have to learn and to reach out and say, I know you're enough. I'm struggling with this. And he shows us these weaknesses in us so we might come to rest our whole selves in our Lord Jesus Christ. John Newton says, These inward trials, speaking on the behalf of God, these inward trials I employ from self and sin to set thee free and cross thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mightst find thy all in me. There's a second thing we need to know is that the purpose of trials is steadfastness. The purpose of trials is steadfastness. So what's, what is steadfastness? The Greek word for step, steadfastness is hupomeno. The word literally translates under remaining or understanding. You're standing up or remaining under something. The trials of your life produce in you, from God, the ability to remain under, to stand firm under a great weight. So think of those massive men you see in the Olympics. You know, those weightlifters who can lift 500-some pounds over their heads. How do you think they got to that point? If I told you, guess what, next week I'm trying out for the Olympic weightlifting team, and I want you to come out and root for me because I'm going to start by lifting 500 pounds over my head. Come on out and root for me. I see you smiling, Doug. You don't think I could do it, do you? You can say it. Yeah. I should take out a life insurance policy. There's no way I could do that. Why not? Because those guys who can lift 500 pounds over their head, 
They've been undergoing training for years. First came 100 pounds. And after they could really manage this, then 110 pounds, greater pressure. And when they could stand firm under that, additional weight was placed on them. Day after day, they became more and more steadfast through testing, through testing. That is how it is with trials that God sends your way. When a trial comes and you feel like your knees are buckling, that is, you know, and you feel like, oh, one more in the straw, this is going to break the camel's back. This is where you need to learn to rely on God for the strength in this trial. You need to turn to Him. That is how God works in us to produce spiritual muscles so that we can remain steadfast under that. And how why we can actually rejoice in this pain that hurts. Because we see, oh, but it's producing steadfastness. Let me just say joy and suffering. When people see great weight being placed on you, and you can still rejoice, that gets people's attention. Remember Paul and Silas who were in prison, beaten black and blue, and they're busy singing gospel hymns in the middle of the night? And that jailer's like, something's going on with these guys. If you can have joy in a situation that no one else in the right mind would, someone's going to ask you for the reason for the hope within you. And joy in trials will provide us gospel opportunities. And then greater joy when you have the opportunity to see a lost soul come to Jesus Christ because they saw how you were under, able to undergo a great trial. Tim Keller says, While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. But steadfastness, that is not the end goal. We're supposed to know a third thing. You are to let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, we know that the end goal of our trials, the end goal of that steadfastness it builds, is our perfection. I remember a discipleship training I was in where we were asked by the leader, so how do you carve a duck from a block of wood? And the answer is actually really simple. You remove everything that's not duck. You remove everything that's not duck from the wood. And that is what God is doing in our trials. He's removing everything from us that does not conform to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So, friend, when a trial comes at you tonight, next week, next month, and you find yourself crying out to God, why is this so painful? Why does this hurt so much? Hear the voice of your loving father as he takes a chisel to you. And he's hear him saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. I'm removing everything off of you that is not part of the masterpiece that I want you to be, that I am making you into. This explains why Christians often go through far more trials than unbelievers. And I hope you realize that. This pastor, Joel, will never preach to you a gospel of prosperity, at least earthly prosperity. If you're a believer, you will face every suffering that unbelievers face in this sin-cursed world. You will, and likely more. But you can rejoice, because unlike unbelievers, your suffering has meaning. Your suffering is never meaningless. It's actually doing something. 
It's producing in you something. It is making you more like Jesus. And actually, it's doing even more than that. God is at work in ways, far more ways than you could ever ask for or imagine, even through the trials. George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis, borrowed this illustration from him. I think this is really helpful. He writes, Imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. And this is how the Christian life begins. We understand that God has come in and he's going to make some changes. And at first this makes sense to us because we've come to an understanding that we need some work done in our lives. We have problems. A leaky roof, leaking pipes, cracks in the walls. And we say, thank you God for working on me. And we're fine with some pain as God is knocking our house around because we know we need this work done. But it doesn't stop. God is also knocking down walls. He is adding new wings. He's installing new floors. And during this painful process, we may ask what so many psalmists ask. God, what are you doing here? I don't understand your purpose. We thought you were going to turn us into a nice little cottage. But that isn't God's purpose. God is building quite a different place than the one we might have expected. God is building a palace. God intends himself to live in it. How about that? And that is exactly what Jesus was revealing to his disciples in his final speech before going to the cross. As he told them about God, the Holy Spirit, who would come to dwell in their hearts. And Jesus added in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus said that they would have sorrows in this life, but to take heart because he had overcome the world. What Jesus is saying is that his resurrection from the dead after he paid for their sins on the cross was going to change everything. Jesus said, he was saying to them, I came to overturn the curse on this sin-stained, broken world in order to inaugurate a new and a better creation guaranteed and held in trust for you by me. Jesus is saying to all of us tonight, own my joy because my resurrection changes everything ultimately, though it doesn't change anything temporarily about today's sorrows. But it's not meaningless. It is light, momentary, in comparison to the glory to soon be revealed, 2 Corinthians 4.17. And also, it helps you to better know the one who loved you more and better than anyone ever has our Lord Jesus Christ. We can say, rah, rah, Jesus, as he goes to the cross and appreciate him in glory. But to truly know Jesus, you also have to take up your own cross, deny yourself and follow him. And then you'll truly know Jesus and even more appreciate the glory to come. I think it's funny that James didn't really know his perfect brother growing up. But once he did, he discovered that the perfection that once irritated him so much as a boy was soon actually to be a gift to him as the end goal of him becoming a servant like his brother Jesus and following his brother who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Friends, Jesus is calling you to do the same. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. 
Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing us this book of wisdom. And as we begin our journey into it, Lord, I ask and pray that you will be working in us and making changes. And I pray that we will take greater hold of our Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of trials, that we will learn that he is all-sufficient and more than enough. I also ask and, and pray, Father, that, that you will help us to remain more and more steadfast, that as weight is put on us, that in the midst of the pain and the suffering, that, that we will see you are, you are making us more and more like Jesus and you're building up our spiritual muscles. And I pray that we might have opportunities before a watching world to share the good news of the gospel. And Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much that you would privilege us to be made co-heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. And even now, you're at work making us like him, our wonderful Savior. Continue your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.